The Invictus Mind, episode 24. Hello, this is Mike Corbell. Each and every person is a sovereign individual, born with a spark of divinity, with unique and unlimited potential. But every one of us will face unique challenges, obstacles, or roadblocks. There are systems in this world that may be built against our own best interests. Governments use force to coerce and compel us. Sometimes we build systems in our very own head. In each episode, we will look at these systems, these roadblocks, the things that prevent us from reaching our true potential. We will discuss how to break free and regain our sovereignty, how we can become the master of our fate and the captain of our soul. Well, hello there. Welcome to another episode of the Invictus Mind. This is your host, Mike Corbell. I'm really excited to be releasing this episode this week because this is my favorite topic. This is probably the most important aspect of individual liberty and self-development that there is, and that is the education of people. On this podcast, I speak a lot about challenges facing people and many of the obstacles that are, in fact, inflicted on us by the government. Some real challenges relate to economics and a monetary system we have. We only need to look around to witness businesses closed, people out of work and struggling, and we can honestly have hour-long discussions about the Federal Reserve and taxation. Other challenges we face is the growing police state, where law is misunderstood and peaceful people are being forced to comply to one particular set of rules or another. The warfare state in this country is appalling. And the U.S. foreign policy that we have is anything other than diplomatic. It continues to bankrupt society and is responsible for countless death and destruction worldwide. And although I can speak of negativity and despair and oppression, the reality is that stuff affects everyone. But there is one issue that seems almost untouchable in America, and that is education. Of course education is important, but as Mark Twain once was quoted, I never let my schooling interfere with my education. You see, there is a difference between gaining knowledge, educating oneself, and getting into forced compliance in a government school system. And tragically, it is these forced 15,000 hours of indoctrination that seem to be causing most of the problems in this country. Just have a conversation with someone who does not understand what the Constitution actually says. This will prove my point. Talk to them about history and civics and how they see the world and how it's so radically different from the reality of what's actually going on. But government education is a sacred institution. Challenging the conventional wisdom of the system will bring arguments from both the left and the right. They will call you a monster, a heathen, or ridicule you for being unenlightened. But what does that say about the history of education in this country? Has this institution proven itself efficient? Are there alternatives to schooling? Can people still learn how to act in society, be well-rounded, and culturally unbiased? What about government worship and the enamoring of the state? What about bullying and violence in the classroom? What about the way we think about the institute of teaching and those people who are taking their lives to carve the minds of our young children in this country? Has it worked out so far? In this episode, we're challenging the process of the education system and raising questions about its efficacy and the results we are getting. Well, hello. On the show with me today is a high school social studies teacher from the great state of Indiana. Along with his master's degree in secondary education, he also has a bachelor's degree in marketing. Though he has over 10 years' experience as an educator, he is an author of the book Failure, subtitled The History and Results of America's School System. Inspired by famous writers and thinkers like John Taylor Gatto, Lee Child, Milton Friedman, and Tom Woods, His views on public education have changed since he began his career, and he is now committed to changing the laws and regulations relating to public education and return education decisions to the individual and family union rather than the state. His name is Justin Spears.
today, Justin? Great, great. How are you doing today? Doing well. I'm chuckling because I, I said you're from the great state of Indiana, as I'm your next-door neighbor in the communist state of Illinois. <laughs> yeah, we get a, a lot of uh, <clears throat> people. I think up in the region, up near Chicago, there's been some friendly rivalry between uh, citizens of Indiana trying to lure uh, Illinoisans over to Indiana. <laughs> Well, my wife's family is from Indiana, and she's been telling me that it's a better state than Illinois, and only until recently did I uh, agree with her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, I want to thank you for coming on the show today, Justin. I, I have so much to talk to you about uh, with public education. I've just been besides myself trying to figure out what I can do with my daughter, whether I want to homeschool her or I want to do something else, but I just don't see the education that she's receiving uh, at the fourth grade level even being quality for her. Yeah, you know, as a parent now, myself, I've got uh, two boys, one in sixth grade, one in fourth grade. Um, it's it's something that um, they're both uh, public in public school as well, uh, more out of necessity of uh, job situations than anything else at this point. Although uh, it, it's always an interesting uh, scenario when you start having that conversation, you know, about here I am an educator, I'm outspoken against the school system in America, and then I tell people that my kids are in the school system. You know, there, there's so many different layers of complexity to, uh, like you just kind of let in there with that discussion on, you know, do we homeschool or not? It's, it's not my uh, total, uh, you know, decision to make. Uh, I've got, you know, my wife to factor in as well, uh, and my boys as well, you know, and that's one of the things that I say uh, a lot in my writing in the book uh, and in the writing that I do online is I'm not I'm not necessarily calling for an abolition uh, an abolishment of the school system uh, per se it does work well for some people uh, but there the the whole notion of a forced compulsive nature behind it the fact that the default is you're going to attend your local public school and then from that point everything else is extraordinarily difficult. Uh, to be able to do, whether you decide to homeschool or go to a charter school or a private school, uh, it, it should be much easier for parents to be able to make those choices and decisions. And so, uh, yeah, that's really kind of the crux of a lot of the writing that I do. Well, great. So I, uh, I read that you, uh, you've been an educator for over 10 years, but you started in a sales and marketing background. What, what was with the change? Yeah. So uh, as you said, started off, uh, got an undergrad degree in marketing. I had grandiose ideas of working with advertising campaigns and uh, things of that nature. And that didn't really pan out very well. Uh, early on, I got into sales. Uh, it wasn't really my cup of tea. It kind of ran me into the ground. Uh, chasing numbers is really all uh, sales jobs are in terms of cold calls and presentations. And, and that really wore me down. And I had an opportunity uh, back when my wife was in grad school at Miami of Ohio over in Oxford, Ohio. Uh, we had come back to Indiana. Uh, it was a natural uh, progression and transition for me to enter into a program where uh, I could go into teaching. It was something that I had entered my undergrad uh, program at uh, Butler University in Indianapolis as, as, you know, thinking about possibly doing uh, some point, and I switched over to the College of Business. So I thought, why not give it a try? And I entered into uh, a two-year accelerated program. And uh, by the time I got done, I had not only uh, my cer uh, certificate to teach, but a master's degree in secondary education as well. Uh, and that was really what kind of spurred that on is I just got worn down by the grind of uh, sales jobs. Yeah, I actually have a background in sales myself, and I know what you mean, that, that daily phone calls and, and the objections, and, and really salesmen, you're just trying to influence people anyway, so there's a lot in common between sales and teaching in general. Yeah, there really is. That's a that's a great point that you make there. Very astute. Um, you know, I am a salesman every day uh, in, in a little bit of a different manner with not quite the same thing. That's one of the things I, um, not to get sidetracked off this, but, you know, with this being Teacher Appreciation Week right now, uh, I wrote a letter last year uh, around this time. Uh, we were going through a huge battle here in the state of Indiana with teacher pay where uh, the Red for Ed movement was uh, sponsoring you know, school districts to send buses of uh, teachers uh, to flood Indianapolis and uh, petition the, the state government for uh, more money, you know, to do something about teacher pay. 
And I wrote this letter that just said, you know, as a teacher to the community, I want to thank you guys uh, because I've got this kind of a scenario where I have all of my holidays off. I get two months off during the summer. Uh, you know, I, I essentially take very little work home with me. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of our educators have never had that experience of working in a professional uh, environment where they do have to bring a lot of that work home. They are living out of suitcases. If you don't produce, you don't eat, you know, kind of mentality. And that's really what, you know, sales is all about. And so, yeah, you know, in a way, I am a salesman as, a, as an educator, but in a much different environment. Okay, so are you no longer working at a high school? Because I, I know I read about the K-12 organization, and maybe you can explain what that is. Yeah, absolutely. So just this uh, past school year, as a matter of fact, back in uh, uh, late September, early October, I uh, left the traditional brick and mortar school that I had been teaching in uh, for about the last four plus years. I uh, made a transition for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, personal. It helped with our, our schedule here at home for me to be at the house. As I mentioned earlier, I have two young boys uh, that are on different schedules with their school. And so they were getting home at different times throughout the week. So it's helped out with that. But yeah, I, I also, uh, you know, had some serious concerns beyond just, uh, you know, the overall direction of, of you know, traditional public education, certainly that was a big part of it, but particularly within the, the district that I was in, and as I found out, it's actually spread to a lot more uh, districts, is this movement to social-emotional learning, uh, SEL learning. Uh, we were uh, going through a program there that I, I really struggled to wrap my mind around and, and to be on board with, and so kind of getting out of that environment. So yes, teaching for K-12 now uh, from home. Uh, K-12 is a national organization within each of its states has charters set up. So here in Indiana, uh, I'm a part of the Indiana Digital Learning School, uh, which is actually a uh, co-partner uh, with a local school district uh, in the state that was on the uh, way of going out. They Their tax base had shriveled so much, the school couldn't afford to keep the doors open. And so K-12 came in and infused some cash into the school corporation. They've been able to keep their building open for their K to 12 instruction, but I, I teach in the digital, uh, the digital field. Yep. So let me try to understand the accreditation because I, I know that when you do homeschool and you have to have a certain accredited program to, for it to count is K 12 accredited with the school system or is it, cause you said it's digital, right? So people could just opt to go to school publicly or stay home, but receive the credit education you're providing. Yeah, so it, my understanding is uh, we have a, a cross section of students in our student body, uh, obviously spread out all throughout the state. Uh, we do have some parents that utilize our platform that are homeschoolers, right? So uh, especially as they get toward the secondary level and the parents may not have a comfort level of being able to teach the classes or the content uh, to the students, they will oftentimes enroll uh, in a class, uh, you know, specifically like a math or a science class uh, for their students. Uh, but a, a good chunk, a traditional uh, chunk of our students are those that come from traditional uh, uh, buildings, uh, schools, and uh, it's a it's a public charter venture. So they get uh, money for that uh, to help pay for tuition. And so, yeah, we get a lot of our students that come in uh, from from that environment. OK, well, with the recent covid shutdowns, you know, all these schools are trying to do an online format. And uh, I was talking to somebody else on a podcast the other day. When this first started, just about, you know, it's been about six weeks now, uh, I'm opening up the technology, trying to understand my daughter's homework, and it seemed like it was harder for us to understand the technology than the assignments they were given. And so I'm just wondering if, uh, you know, <laughs> your program is, is user-friendly, are parents scratching their heads? I mean, how does that work? Yeah, you know, and, and the reality is, is um, this is at kind of, you know, I, I chuckle a little bit, the heart of education in my uh, in my opinion you know there are as many ways to be educated as there are stars in the sky uh, and so this system works well for some people for others it doesn't um, obviously just from a um, just from a perspective of uh, nuts and bolts, 
uh, teaching in this environment and learning in this environment are much different, obviously, than in a traditional classroom. Um, you know, it takes a tremendous amount of self-control on the student part to be engaged. I do teach live uh, sessions each day. There are some online platforms that don't teach live sessions. Uh, in other words, they have a canned curriculum with pre-created videos and resources that the kids work through at their own pace. The teacher is there and available as a guide if there's additional help that's needed. But I actually teach live sessions. I do hold help sessions and tutoring things, uh, you know, for some of my students. Uh, but, but to kind of get to the answer to your question, it really just depends. I, I see it across the board. I see some of my students who perform phenomenally in this environment. They know the technology. They know how to use it. Um, and sometimes they know how to use it even better than myself, to be honest with you. Uh, but then, yeah, you know, we have a lot of students that come to K-12 just fleeing public school because of health concerns, bullying, um, you know, and other issues that they, they just kind of come to us as, as refuge, but they don't really take the time to understand the platform. And there is a learning curve with the technology. It is different, not only for the teacher to teach, but for the student to learn. Uh, and there's a lot of times that I have to really remind myself as I've again been with the uh, organization now for even under a year still that teaching in a traditional classroom is much different than teaching uh, in this online platform. And I found it kind of interesting too, uh, Mike, that, you know, with my boys going to uh, this our school district initially came out because we are not uh, totally one-to-one -one with devices K through 12. Our uh, junior high and high school students have Google Chromebooks, uh, but our elementary kids don't. And so I sent uh, an email to the superintendent and the principals of the schools, school building saying, I have serious concerns about distance learning, uh, e-learning, because not every kid has technology and not every kid interacts with the technology very well. And it was within a couple of weeks, I'm not claiming I did it, uh, but it was interesting that within a week or so, um, they had changed their, uh, their, their vocabulary from e-learning to at-home learning. <laughs> mm. And so they offered, uh, you know, uh, hard copy packets available for fa families that didn't have the computer technology uh, or, you know, di didn't feel comfortable with using it. Uh, but yeah, it's, you know, it, it has become a full-time job. You know, I teach from uh, eight, I have to be on at eight o'clock Eastern time. I teach from eight uh, to four every day. And then after that, I'm, I'm usually spending at least an hour or so, uh, if not more with my uh, two boys kind of helping them get their work done for the day. Well, that's fascinating the way technology is uh, just taking over everything. I think it's the answer to many of life's solutions. Yeah, so uh, Justin, I, I first heard your name, you were on another podcast, uh, I think with Mike Meharry mm -hmm. some time back. Yep. And uh, I was fascinated by the conversation. And I want to ask you a little bit about uh, your background. Um, because, like I said, education has just been a very important topic to me for so long. I've been uh, checking out the, uh, the other uh, teacher, former teacher, who does a podcast called the School Sucks Podcast. Yes, sir. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I have to be honest, I haven't checked out your podcast, but uh, what you and, and, and the other podcasts were saying are very similar. And I think what I'm asking is, um, at some point in your career, you, us libertarians call it the red pill. You were awakened as to what's <laughs> going really on. Why don't you sure. tell a story about how, how did you come into uh, the idea that, that there's something definitely going on within edu public education realm and, and why things need to be changed? Yeah, so kind of a two-part to that. The, the first part is just um, an understanding through experience. Uh, being in the classroom, when I went through the transition to teaching program, I was fed, you know, the tried and true public education is the hero. Uh, it's the only way we need to invest more in education. You know, all those hardcore lines that you hear from the apologists. And I wouldn't say that I, by any stretch of the imagination, became indoctrinated to that. I grew up as a quote unquote conservative, uh, you know, the, the, the standard Hannity, Beck, Limbaugh, uh, that, that was kind of my upbringing through uh, college and my early career. And so I, I always kind of was a little skeptical about that to begin with. The smaller government uh, didn't always trust what government was offering. And so as I spent time in the classroom, I got to see it firsthand. And I just saw so many kids wasting away in classrooms that they had no desire to be in. Uh, they had no aptitude for, uh, they were never going to use the uh, information. 
and I started to kind of dig in a little bit uh, to some al alternative uh, theories on education. Uh, I had really only been introduced to Dewey uh, and Mann, Horace Mann, who are seen as kind of the one and one A of public education here in America. And so, yeah, I started to, to kind of dive in and, and pair that up with my experience and just started questioning and uh, around the same time, then, um, I also went through a transformation into uh, really catching on to libertarian thought. Uh, as I started teaching, I initially started teaching business classes the first four years of my uh, teaching career, and then I transitioned into social studies, where I was teaching more of uh, world history, economics, government. And uh, I'll never forget, I was at school, and a guy that I, I taught with, who's a very close friend of mine, he actually helped write the book, Mike Margison. Um, I came across something that he had shared with me from this guy named Mises. And um, I started doing some research online and I naively uh, came across the Mises Institute. And I just thought, I mean, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. I just started reading and reading and reading and watching videos. And I'm, I'm looking at this guy named Rothbard and I'm reading this uh, guy named Spooner and I'm looking at uh, Hans Hermann Hoppe and I'm just diving into this. I, I remember I fired this email off to the uh, coworker and I said, man, have you heard, have you seen this before? Where has this been? And he's like, dude, <laughs> I listen to Tom Woods every day. I, I go to Mises every day. And I just, you know, from that point on, I was just diving head into this stuff. And it really kind of helped pair very nicely uh, with, with that other transformation of kind of questioning and seeing uh, what public education was truly doing uh, to our children uh, in this country. And, and that, you know, that kind of explains a little bit of that. You call your book failure in the history and the result of America's school system. I mean, you could take a minute if you'd like to talk about uh, the history of school and uh, why you think it failed. Because uh, you, you hear the word indoctrination a lot when you talk about education. But uh, just from a, an educator's perspective, you know, can you recap just, if you could briefly, just the history and, and, and where you see some of the major problems change or the transition took place? Yeah, so we kind of toyed around as a funny story. Uh, I don't know if I told this on Mike's podcast or not. The initial title of the book was going to be Broken and uh, with the same subtitle. And somewhere along the line of writing the book, uh, Mike Margison and myself were talking, uh, the guy I said helped write the book. And this question had come up about, is the school system broken? Uh, and, and this got into like some rabbit hole philosophical debate about, well, it's not really broken because it's doing what it, it was designed to do. So can we really say that it's broken if we admit that, you know, it was designed to indoctrinate, as you said, which is a word that gets used a lot to describe uh, our public school system. Uh, or as uh, Corey D'Angelo says, the government school system, which I, I really like, by the way, as a side note, I sometimes slip up. But yes, government school system, because the government runs it operates it funds it it is government run and he gets under people's skin all the time about that but at any rate um so we we said what about failure because it, it is a failure. It's an abject failure. It, it doesn't do uh, anything to help promote uh, the overall movement of society of what it was intended uh, to educate people. Uh, it is not doing that. You can look at report after report after report, uh, you know, going back from a nation at risk uh, in the 1980s, the nation's report cards, no child left behind, the race to the top. I mean, year after year after year, we see these reports come out that show us just how much uh, we are falling short in educating our children through this uh, system here. And so what we attempt to do in the book is um, kind of tell the story of where this, you know, idea of mass compulsive uh, schooling came from, forced schooling came from. And what I think a lot of the run of the mill parents who you know, maybe sense that something's wrong in their child's school, but don't really know, you know, there's this thing called Common Core, and it's the boogeyman. And yes, it certainly has a role in it. But what we're attempting to do is say it's even deeper than that. It's beyond just Common Core and dumbing down and that kind of thing. It's at the root of how we attempt to educate our children. What we are doing is we are saying, we're going to take a one size fits all approach, we're going to create these buildings and we're going to cram all of the kids that live within a certain radius of that building into it. And we're going to try to educate them all the same way. 
And on top of that, we're going to make it uh, mandatory by law that if you don't do it, uh, you can be fined, you know, punished, whatever. And so uh, kind of telling that story a little bit in the book and going back to Prussia, uh, which at the time had lost a battle to Napoleon and the French and started to question some of the things that were going on in their country. And what they found was their military leaders had too much autonomy. They were thinking too much for themselves, and, and they couldn't have that anymore. So this idea of uh, the Prussian education system was to indoctrinate uh, the youth into growing up to be loyal to the country uh, and to, you know, really kind of see things through that lens of, you know, uh, loyalty to, to Prussia and doing everything for the mother country and uh, not thinking independently and, and just being kind of a cog in the wheel. And that's, you know, essentially what our system is built off of as Horace Mann uh, traveled over there in the 1800s and then brought that idea back to uh, America. And we start to see the first compulsory law uh, in the uh, early to mid 1800s. So uh, obviously, since the, the schools were made mandatory in the early 1800s, uh, do you see there being a dramatic change? Uh, I, I, since uh, the Department of Education, to my knowledge, was uh, initiated in 1979, up until that point, we still had mandatory education, we still had um, compulsory education. But do you think, since you called it government schooling, do you think that that, it, that Department of Education made a big difference for the last 30 years? Well, certainly in terms of funding, um, I don't know that it's moved the needle at all in terms of, um, you know, any kind of uh, overall success with curriculum or design or, uh, you know, looking at ways to, to try to actually educate our children. Uh, but when we look at the increase of funding, uh, to public schools over time, uh, it adjust, uh, inflation adjusted has increased dramatically uh, and it really accelerated. And that's one of the you know myths that a lot of times the uh, the public school um, defenders will throw out there is uh, you know funding has been slashed, uh, you know we we've been gutted. There's no money for teachers and so on and so forth. And that's just patently not true. I think the the last numbers that I saw is somewhere around fifteen thousand dollars per student and funding uh, in this country, which is, you know, plenty of money uh, to, to, to attempt to try to educate another person, um, you know, to see it come down to being battled and fought out with the unions about money uh, and, and some of the things that they've been able to accomplish uh, with protectionism in, in the trade as well. Uh, and, and really something that uh, we didn't get a whole lot into that I would like to explore someday as well as the, the professionalism uh, aspect of uh, teachers and, and professionalizing, uh, I should say, the, 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 uh, the idea of teaching and what it's meant uh, as well. Because you mentioned at the top, one of the biggest influences on me in writing this book was a man named John Taylor Gatto. And Gatto, you know, oftentimes in his books uh, and, and writings would talk about the fact that anybody with experience to offer uh, can be seen as an educator, uh, whether it's the local mechanic at your auto shop or a florist who's owned their shop for a while or a baker, chef, whatever, you know, anybody with experience to offer can educate another person on these topics. And so this idea of licensure and professionalizing uh, the teaching uh, industry, I think has also had a detrimental effect as well, uh, which certainly the Department of Ed uh, and the, along with the unions have, have led the, the charge on that as well. So yeah, you know, I mean, clearly an impact, uh, but not a positive one. Mm -hmm. I remember reading a book, it was probably been about 10 years ago now, but the book was in 1950, written by Dr. Mortimer Adler. And it was part of the Britannica Great Books of the Western World series. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that or not. But uh, Dr. Adler, uh, in fact, Brett Vinoy on the School Sucks Project always talks about this, the great Western books. And uh, Dr. Adler was talking about how in 1950, he was noticing a trend in this country uh, where they were just pumping general education instead of specialism into, into students. And I think that uh, that's where a lot of people who have an opposition to public education really they, they focus on it. Well, they're just teaching us general ed facts and figures and, and people are coming out of school with no real experience or real knowledge in anything. What's your take on it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, something that I've, I've tried to draw attention to. And, and I try my best to engage a lot of my colleagues in uh, dialogue on this. 
uh, not many takers, uh, surprisingly. Uh, I, I have a few that will, will chime in and, and um, push back a little bit. But one of the things that I've uh, written about here recently is this idea of a liberal arts education, uh, which I oftentimes hear apologists talk about being well-rounded and having to take classes on you know fine arts and foreign language and math and science and English and on and on it goes. Uh, and listen, as a social studies teacher, uh, I, you know, I know uh, that if what I'm advocating for would, would come to uh, fruition, it might mean I'm out of a job. Uh, I understand that. Um, but the reality is, is that, yes, you're absolutely right. The, the whole idea of a liberal arts, well-rounded education, general education uh, is pie in the sky. The reality is that these kids are showing up to schools every day. They're shuffling into these classrooms. They have no desire whatsoever to want to be there. Uh, therefore, um, you know, you, you just you're, you're left to, to turn it into a charade game. And that's one thing that I think is probably one of the saddest things that I've seen from educators is the, the gaming of the classroom. Uh, you know, you got to turn everything into a game. There's a famous book in educational cir circles called Teach Like a Pirate, uh, where, you know, they're celebrating this guy that dresses up in costumes and almost kind of imagine like Robin Williams. Would that be entertaining? Yes, I'm sure it would be. You know, if a guy was coming in dressed up as a pirate and dressing up in other costumes and, you know, reenacting scenes and things of that nature, I'm sure it probably would be entertaining. But people, students, aren't there to be entertained. We're not in the entertainment business. We're in the education business. We're in there to help prepare these children for the future. Uh, and so I think one of the biggest mistakes that we see in terms of curriculum today is a focus on driving home facts into the mind, which of course then is reinforced through uh, standardized testing, which has become all too common uh, in, in the educational world. It's all about just cramming the head full of facts. Uh, one of my favorite books uh, that has kind of hit on this is Dr. Brian Kaplan's book, uh, The Case Against Education, uh, which is a phenomenal uh, statistical study. He's an education professor at George Mason University uh, that, that really just deconstructs this idea of, you know, we provide a well-rounded education because as his data and studies show, uh, we don't remember what we learned. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. by the time we get out of school, we can't remember half of what we've learned. Uh, it's all about signaling, you know, when you go through and finish your high school um, diploma and go off into college, potential uh, work, uh, work uh, employers, they're not looking at, you know, what classes did you take? They're looking to see, did you complete the class? Did you complete the degree? They're looking at these check mark boxes. And then that, you know, increases your uh, desirability to be hired because guess what? Surprise, surprise, uh, you're a conformist and you'll do what you need to do to complete the task. And that's what companies are looking for. Uh, they're not looking for free and independent thinkers who are going to challenge, uh, you know, corporate laws and, and regulations. They want people who are going to be do-gooders that are going to come in and follow directions and complete tasks. So, you know, that also, I think, deconstructs this idea of a well-rounded education. Yeah, I mean, going back to Horace Mann's philosophy and, uh, you know, being able to be loyal to the, the state, if you would, or, you know, the federal government, and that's what they're teaching schools. We look at the future now, and we are no longer in the industrial age where we're just, people just need to learn how to comply and how to just, you know, operate based on what their bosses are telling them. We're going into more information, digital creativity age. So uh, there's an argument to be said there that education system itself needs to be tweet because learning is different nowadays. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that I write in, in the book, Failure, is look, classrooms by and large have not changed at all uh, over time. I mean, yeah, they, they may have slapped a new uh, coat of paint up and the desk may be uh, a little bit different, but a classroom is a classroom, you know, and they may have added these shiny little Promethean boards and, you know, interactive boards and things of that nature in there. Uh, but the, the, the way in which we go about attempting to educate uh, children, uh, you know, 24, 25, up to 30 in a classroom at a time with the desks in rows and all the attention toward the teacher. And, you know, we're, we're not preparing those students for, uh, as you accurately pointed out there, a, a different world than what we experienced in during and after the Industrial Revolution. Uh, we talk a lot in the book about the role that men like Carnegie and Rockefeller played on uh, influencing the way that school is set up from the Bell system 
you know, of, of having kids move from one task to another, uh, you know, a start time and an end time, uh, you know, all of the rules and regulations that, that come along with school uh, to, again, help prepare uh, students to be good rule followers when they get out uh, of school as well. But again, unfortunately, what we're not doing is we're not developing the free thinking creativity. We pay it lip service uh, in education. We talk about group projects and project-based thinking and higher order thinking and all these fancy uh, educational terms that get bantied about. But at the end of the day, we're, we're just simply not getting it done. You know, the, the results speak for themselves in terms of uh, the output of our students. Uh, I think it, I watched a documentary not too long ago called Waiting for Superman, which was produced back uh, in, in 2010. Uh, and it, it talked about, I believe the number was something like 37% of of, uh, students that graduate from California high schools uh, go to college and need remediation. Um, and so we know that we're not doing a good enough job. Dropout rates are still uh, higher than they should be. I think they're at somewhere at around 16% and they're higher among minority groups as well. Uh, so yeah, I mean, the, the way in which we're going about doing this uh, is is like, you know, what do they say the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result? I mean, it, it literally is insanity. Yeah, I want to spend a minute just talking about the culture of the classroom. Uh, I am a product of uh, <laughs> of government education, but I, like many people, you have to you have to educate yourself further beyond what you learn in school. Um, I don't remember where I heard this, but it was a valid point, and they were relating to you know you mentioned earlier that uh, the kids from all over the community go into the one building, and you may have twenty five, thirty people into a classroom with one teacher. And then they put them all in the same age groups. And I can't think of anywhere in communities where people of the same age are going to just sit there and interact with each other. It seems to me that, you know, they should teach to, to learn people from different ages, different uh, backgrounds, different uh, experiences, because then you're really learning how to, how to act in the real world. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, think about just from a pure socialization, which is kind of a, a funny thing that you, you mentioned that one of the things that a lot of the public school apologists will uh, lean to as far as why public schools are needed is that socialization factor. But think about how much uh, our kids would benefit if they were inner age mingled uh, in buildings a little bit more and being able to, for example, in what we typically refer to as the junior high and middle school years, uh, be able to exhibit leadership leadership uh, with younger kids, right, or to have older kids there to be able to uh, model off of, but instead you're isolated in this building uh, with kids that are all of the same age. Somebody I was listening to not too long ago brought up a great point about the whole notion that, you know, one of the things that we say is there's been this artificial extension of childhood, uh, which we call teenage years, uh, because going back, you know, uh, to the 1800s, you were working, you were in the adult world, you know, Gatto again talks a lot about this uh, idea of, you know, school teaches you to kind of wait around and wait around and wait around. You know, if you go back in history, once you hit, you know, 11 or 12, if you weren't producing for the community, if you weren't producing for the family, you know, there was something wrong with you. And so, you know, this idea that we need kids to mature, you know, because th that's one of the things, well, these kids are immature. They need, they need to be more, well, you just stuck them with a bunch of immature kids with nobody to model except for their teacher who they see as an authoritarian figure. Uh, and so, yeah, you know, I think we do a huge disservice to our students by isolating them by grade level. Uh, in addition to that, you know, with the culture in the classroom, uh, a lot of these kids are coming uh, into these classrooms from uh, all kinds of different uh, environments where they bring different attitudes and perspectives about learning. And so you get all of these different, uh, you know, learning uh, styles and attitudes and behaviors in there, but yet you're trying to do it in one uh, way. And as I said earlier, it's the, it's the classical square peg round hole uh, situation. And it's, it's unfortunate because at the end of the day, the victim is the child because then the system says that there's something wrong with the child. And we can get into talking about the rise of ADHD diagnoses and behavioral issues uh, that have been, you know, uh, pointed out 
I can't control Johnny. He won't sit crisscross applesauce and listen to me read. That's because Johnny is an active nine-year-old boy and you're wanting them to him to sit there, break his will to sit there and not move and keep his eyes focused on you the whole time that you're reading a book that quite honestly, he probably doesn't even care about, right? So there's all kinds of issues that, that you can look at with the way that uh, the modern classroom operates. I was thinking for a second when you talk about uh, a nine-year-old sitting still, you also have to realize that the culture that we live in today where mom and dad have to go to work, so they wake up these kids really early and they feed them sugary breakfast cereals, right? They give them all kinds of bad nutrition and then they're like, okay, go sit in the classroom and sit still. <laughs> it's mm. like, how, how is that going to even work? Yeah, it, it's not, you know, and, and again, on top of that, the fact that, you know, children are naturally kinesthetic. You know, we, we know that it's bad for our bodies. Our bodies resist non-movement. We're, we're, you know, wired to, to be on the move. We learn by interacting with our environments. And when we're not doing that, uh, you know, our, our mind is saying, wait, something is wrong here. And it wants to act out. And therefore, then that gets looked as well. You're ADHD. So you need to be placed on a medication so that you can come into my classroom every day like a zombie so that I can have control and be able to lead all 25 of of you in one movement at one time and make it look like I'm doing a great job uh, along the way because when my principal walks in I got to see order I got to see active learning happening and that doesn't happen when I'm having to chase you know the kids around the room or keep them from being up and moving around so that's something that I personally have fought uh, with my oldest uh, son when he was going through school from kindergarten up through fourth grade every single year uh, our teacher take him and get him tested, take him and get him tested. And finally we relented and said, okay, we'll do it. And the pediatrician said, he's a healthy, normal boy. There's nothing wrong with your child. He just likes to be up and moving around. He's one that he could be over building Legos or fighting with uh, army men and you could be talking to him, walk away, come back. And 10 minutes later, he can repeat word for word what you said to him, but he doesn't exhibit what that should look like in the eyes of our education system, which says, you know, bubbles in your mouth, hands in your pockets, eyes on me, be quiet, don't talk, don't do this, don't do that. Um, you know, and, and that's why he's looked at as a, um, you know, oddity. <laughs> yeah, so I've been studying some of the other types of education. I mentioned homeschool, but, uh, you know, Montessori schooling and a concept called unschooling. Mm -hmm. And uh, help me understand this because, you know, if you, my understanding of like something like unschooling is you, you take a child and you, you kind of see what, uh, impulses they have, what desires, what interests they have. And, mm -hmm. and you really set them on a program to, okay, well, so let's dive into that interest a little deeper. And you craft an education for that child based on those interests. And so they may not even teach you how to read for a while until you need to know how to read for what you're doing. They may not even teach you math until, okay, it's required for this part of whatever interest you have. Is, uh, is, is, that, is that true what I'm talking about with, when it comes to like unschooling? Yeah, yeah, fairly close. And um, I think there's a lot of common misconceptions about unschooling. Um, it, it sounds, you know, kind of wacky and loony. Again, because so much of the way in which we think about educating children is based on control. And so what we're doing is essentially we're saying we want to relent that control over to the child. Of course, uh, as the uh, parent or influential adult in their life, we're there to help guide them along and making decisions and uh, the older the child gets and more mature and responsible in decision making they are, you can, you know, even give more freedom of control over what they're learning. But yeah, you're absolutely right. What you do is you identify the things that they have as strengths or the things that they enjoy and you wrap your learning around that, right? And you find yourself teaching them scientific principles through learning about, you know, Star Wars, or you're talking about, um, you know, how to write a story through watching a, uh, a certain show that they enjoy on TV, or uh, going out in nature and, and taking walks and, and interacting with their environment and teaching them things about biology and ecology and things of that nature. So yes, you wrap up the curriculum into uh, the interests that they have. And uh, and, and I use that word curriculum and in reality, you don't 
really necessarily want to try to uh, cram a quote unquote curriculum down their throat. I think that's one of the great mistakes that uh, we make in uh, education, either both at the uh, at the traditional school buildings, and I see a lot of homeschooling parents as well. There's some homeschooling groups that I'm a member of on Facebook that are constantly asking about what curriculum are you using here? You know, the curriculum comes from life. You know, honestly, you just let the child interact with their, their, their day-to-day life and find those opportunities to be able to explore and expand and let that learning happen organically, which is really what is at the base of all learning is just natural, organic process of interaction and, and then personal feedback, right? So I did this and here's what happened you know, what can I learn from that? And then, you know, you just, you just kind of keep repeating that process over and over. And that's where you see that growth occur. Mm. You mentioned curriculum a few times. And then uh, I'm going back to when you said that the principal would walk by your classroom and see that education is taking place. So in the school, in the public, in the government school system, what kind of feedback is appreciated or listened to from the teacher's perspective as far as this is the curriculum that I think we need to teach or are they just told this is what you have to teach and they don't get any liberty as to change that around? Yeah, so there's a couple of variables that I think factor into that. Number one is what is your content? If you're teaching math and language arts today, uh, in most schools, your hands are pretty much tied uh, because those two subjects are so highly scrutinized on standardized testing. Um, again, over here in the state of Indiana, we have a, a test called iLearn. Uh, it was called iStep, uh, which is uh, grades three through eight. Uh, take and now there's a ECA, uh, which is what they have to pass to be able to officially get the high school credit for uh, a class. And so, yeah, you're you're pretty much handcuffed on that um, as you go through. Uh, the other thing that's going to uh, so so yeah so you know like if you're a science teacher, maybe you've got a little bit more. I know as a social studies teacher, I had a little bit more you know freedom and control over that. The other thing I think too that factors into that is the just the overall philosophy of the leadership in your uh, corporation that you're teaching in your school district. Uh, I, I have traditionally taught in smaller school districts uh, where I haven't really taught for a lot of micromanagers before and therefore I've been left to be able to implement um, you know curriculum as long as I can demonstrate that I'm teaching to the standards. Um, you know so for example in, in US government you know you would teach a standard on uh, the Articles of Confederation and as long as I was teaching that you know the content that I would use would be you know up to me and I would actually use uh, an article written by Dr. Brad Berzer, uh, who's a professor, I believe at Hillsdale, if he's still there, uh, college up in Michigan, um, that really gave a very pro Articles of Confederation uh, slant, which we don't normally hear or see in popular textbooks. It's more of, hey, this thing was a failure and the federal government needed more control. So we got to teach that. Well, I taught the fact that, you know, the Articles of Confederation uh, did a great job. It led us through the Treaty of Paris. It led us through the purchase of the Northwest Territory. Uh, It gave states a lot of autonomy. Uh, You know, there's some misconceptions about that. So at any rate, I'm just giving you an example there of, uh, of some stuff. So yeah, I think those are really the variables in terms of the curriculum that gets taught. A lot of it has to do with the subject uh, content uh, and then also the, the, just the overall district itself. Yeah, I think that by providing at least both sides of a, of a discussion, you, know, you definitely are encouraging that critical thought process. It, they say that history is, uh, is written by the victors, right? Mm-hmm. And, yeah, uh, and you know, those victors, they, they're going to be biased and, and then all your textbooks are going to be uh, written based on that perspective, thinking back to like the Civil War, right? You know, mm-hmm. if you're from the North, you know, the South is bad in every situation, right? But I know my, I have family that lives in Florida and, and they're, taught, they're taught a little bit more from the Southern perspective. Uh, yeah, and that, yeah, that's another great point as well. That you know, uh, geographically within the country, there may be differences in terms of you know, especially local history, state history. Um, you know, yeah, but even at a at a national level, the way in which we view. I know I oftentimes lament that, and I'm sure you probably see this as well uh, in Illinois that in every public uh, school or government school. 
uh, in the state of Indiana, there's a shrine to Abraham Lincoln, you know, built into the, the library. I know uh, at most schools and libraries that I've been to, you'll find this huge, gigantic uh, shrine to, to Lincoln. And of course, if you, you know, push back against his narrative on how he really felt about blacks in America, you know, you're just, oh, that's, that's nonsense. He freed the slaves, the Emancipation Proclamation and greatest president ever. And it's like, well, well let's talk about the fact that he suspended habeas corpus. Well, what's that? You know, it's like, okay, now, you know, you're right. We, I would always try to encourage the other side of conventional wisdom and the way in which, you know, I would always kind of go about doing that is to start with, what do you guys know about this? And, you know, kind of introduce gradually that mainstream idea and then really poke holes in it. And I was very contrarian a lot of times and the kids enjoy that because that's what kids are, right? Kids are contrarian. They, they naturally want to resist and fight back. And so if you're constantly just spoon feeding this mainstream uh, narrative, they're going to get sick of it. You know, they want to hear somebody kind of pushing back against what, you know, conventional wisdom has to say. And I think I usually got a lot of engagement from my students uh, because of that, uh, just kind of thinking outside of the, the traditional accepted uh, lines with, with what we were talking about. You know, it's interesting that, uh, you know, you're talking about doing that at a young age, which I think is very healthy because with some of the indoctrination that people get through 15,000 hours of schooling, right? And then they come out into the real world, whether they're going to college or they're just in their adult life, and then they see something on the internet or they, you know, like you, 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 you come across an article or like the Mises Institution. And then all of a sudden, everything that you learned up to that point seems like, well, have I been lied to? Is this real? It, it seems to leave a lot of confusion there. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's funny that we're talking about this because just in my world history class today, uh, I was teaching a lesson on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and kind of going over the, the brief history of that. And instead of trying to get them to know who Yasser Arafat was or who Benjamin Netanyahu was or, or is, um, you know, and, and trying to teach them all of the, you know, well, and 48, this happened. And in 67, this happened. Instead, I just said, you know, here's a video we're going to watch on this. It introduced some ideas to them. And then I asked them the question, who's right and who's wrong? And I told him, I said, I, I don't want your answer. What I want you to think about is how you're going to answer that question. Because the thing is, is that as you guys get a little bit older, your opinions are going to start to matter a little bit more in that people are going to ask for them. Uh, and you're going to need to be able to uh, defend that. And how you do that is very important. And I use the COVID-19 situation, you know, and they, they all kind of understood through seeing stuff in the media and on social media, you know, there's all kinds of stuff being, you know, bantied about. This doctor says this thing, this doctor says that thing, who do I believe? And so we, we spent, you know, a good chunk of time in the class talking about how to conduct research and how to vet resources uh, that, that you read and how to think of what the other side has to say. And I told them, I said, look, you know, I own just as many books from people that I disagree with as I do from people that I would agree with ideologically, because I want to know what the other side has to say. That's going to either strengthen my conviction or open my mind to see where maybe I, I had a blind spot. And so we just spent a lot of time today kind of breaking that down and talking about the importance of not just regurgitating talking points that we hear from our parents or, you know, news or that we read on social media, but really taking the time to try to attempt to learn something and being educated on it from that perspective uh, is super important. Awesome. I've seen that you've contributed to uh, Reason, to Mises, the Foundation for Economic Freedom, and, and some of the, the other channels out there. So uh, are, you, are you just push, promoting your, your book? Are you, are you trying to change the paradigm? I mean, what's, uh, what's the future for Justin Spears look like? Yeah. So initially, uh, when we got the idea to write the book, um, you know, we'd never really written much before from a publishing perspective. And so, uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Mike Margison uh, and myself got together. We, we taught right, literally right next door to one another. And we would oftentimes, you know, share conversations before and after school. And uh, we kind of got this idea of, hey, you know, uh, we've experienced this stuff. We, we both see what's happening. Why don't we write about it? And so, you know, to kind of test that out, we said, what if we started doing some writing 
uh, for some online outlets. And our first article was published through Fee, uh, which was essentially the thesis of the book that we went with. We just wanted to see how it would be received. And we got some pretty good feedback from that. Uh, we got a lot of engagement online from people. And so that, that kind of gave us the uh, the courage to continue to move forward into finishing up the book. And along the way, we uh, wrote some other articles that got picked up at, in other outlets. And um, I, I started doing a little bit of writing, as you mentioned earlier, with Mike uh, Meharry and Michael Bolden at the 10th Amendment Center uh, on some states' rights stuff related to education. Uh, since we uh, started writing the book, we slowed down on uh, writing for uh, online publications uh, to focus more. I'm actually in the process of writing a second book right now uh, in, uh, titled Let Down, uh, How Schools Marginalize Our Most um, uh, Vulnerable Students, which is going to be a look at uh, how schools really fail our minority students, our black, Latino, Native American, and uh, poor, uh, low socioeconomic status students. Uh, and we've started that process now and hope to have that ready by the summer. So yeah, to kind of answer your question, um, a little bit of both. Uh, it, it is um, a little bit of a, a passion and a desire to just want to, you know, create dialogue and conversation. But we're also, you know, in all of our works, we always try to make sure that we uh, introduce solutions uh, to these problems and trying to create, uh, you know, some, some dialogue that will lead eventually to action. Yeah, I'm sure you have much more uh, freedom to go ahead and, and, and speak your mind when you're outside of the government education system, working for a private organization as you are, and uh, just being able to do that. Yeah, absolutely. And and that was something that we talked about um, early on uh, was, hey, you know, how is this going to be received? Uh, I did some local media appearances here in uh, in Indiana um, on our flagship uh, MS station. Uh, I, I've been on many, many podcasts. And like I said, I'm very open on my social media uh, as well on my Facebook and Twitter uh, in trying to uh, in, engage educators to have these conversations and, and to, you know, not necessarily say that I'm right, you're wrong, but just to try to get them to open up their mind to the idea that, you know, maybe this thing isn't working. Uh, and, and I know that you want to defend it to the end. Uh, but the reality is, is that the, 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 the victim in all of this is the kids, you know, and, and one of the things that I heard, I think it was Mike uh, Margison that said it to me early on, uh, is, you know, you only get one shot at this in life to educate a child. And just to see so many uh, children that are um, failing and struggling uh, through school, uh, there's all kinds of ties to depression and anxiety uh, and, and things of that nature that this is causing. It just, it breaks my heart to see it. And so, um, you know, if we can create any amount of movement of the needle with this, we're all for it. Well, I appreciate people like yourself going ahead and speaking out, having been in the education system. Somebody like myself, I can voice my opinions, and all of a sudden, I don't know what I'm talking about. I have no idea. I mean, I'm a, I'm a father. I went to school. I know what I see and what's, what the results are. But uh, the backlash against anything regarding you know, the government education system is, is, is just is amazing to me. People, it's like their number one issue. It's like, it's like a religion to them. It's like, don't talk about school. Can't right. It's so, yeah. It's almost like that third rail that they always talk about with social security. You know, you start talking bad about your local school and all of a sudden you're satanic and you've got, you know, heads growing out the side of your neck. And yeah, I mean, you know, like I said, I, I've tried to do it in a very diplomatic manner. I mean, the message is very shocking. Uh, you know, when I talk to people about the fact that I am a public uh, school educator, even again in a, in a uh, situation like with K-12, uh, and I tell them that I, I don't agree with what this is doing, they kind of look at me a little weird, like, well, what's that all about? But then as I try to just be, you know, as cerebral as possible with it and break it down for them and say, look, you know, the facts are as plain as the nose on our face that this thing is not only not accomplishing its goal of educating children and preparing them for the future, it's, it's making them physically and mentally sick. I mean, when you look at depression and anxiety, and one of the things that I've seen as a talking point here during this COVID situation is there's a bunch of public school defenders that are out on social media, you know, leading this campaign about kids that, you know, school is their safe haven because they've got these really crummy home environments and now they're trapped in these home environments where they may be being abused. And listen, 
I get it. I understand it. I've seen it. I've heard the stories. I know it exists. I don't want to marginalize that any way, shape or form. But part of me wants to say like, have you looked at the numbers of students that are physically and sexually abused inside of our public schools these days? It's, mm-hmm. it's unbelievable. So to, to make this out like, well, school is, is this end all be all and it's the only savior for our children is just patently false. And, and there are children every day in this country uh, that are impacted in a negative way by being forced into a school where it's beyond just like, you know, as a kid, you probably had this. I did, you know, it's like, I don't want to go to school today. I don't want to take that test. No, it's like I'm physically getting sick because I have to go to school and this teacher is going to belittle me or I'm going to be bullied by this student or I'm going to take tests and I have test anxiety and I'm being told that it's my fault uh, that I I physically get sick when I have to take a test. You know, it's just the the messaging behind it um, is is unbelievable. And so, uh, you know, we, we that goes all the way back to we have to have a system that provides options and alternatives that are easy for parents to be able to choose without having to jump through hoops and apply for scholarships and fill out paperwork and you know and even then they're ridiculed i've heard stories of people that have gone to unenroll their kids from public schools and they get the runaround from the principal or administrators about well you can't do that you know that that's not allowed at this point it's just unbelievable I want to take a brief moment, not to go on too much of a tangent, but we talk about uh, students who have depression and you have bullies. And then, of course, all over the news, whenever a school shooting happens, and I'm only thinking, okay, well, school shootings happen for a number of reasons, and I'm not trying to figure out the whole psychology, but probably the environment that you're talking about, people sitting in there having anxiety, being bullied, not being able to be uh, heard when their opinions are valid or not. And, And... you know, I think that that sets up a lot of a lot of the violence and a lot of the tragedies that we hear just because of the system itself. Yeah, you know, um, personally, and I'm not speaking scientifically on this, I'm kind of going off of my gut. Um, having grown up, you know, during Columbine and, you know, all of the other subsequent things that have happened since then, I think immediately there's this kind of like, well, what can we blame it on? And initially it was, you know, violence in video games and violence in movies and violence in music. And again, I don't want to, you know, marginalize that and say it doesn't play a role in it. Uh, but you, you brought up a really good point there. And, and there's uh, a gentleman that you may be familiar with, Michael Malice, uh, who, you know, has often uh, been on record as saying, you know, schools are literal prisons. Uh, they're, they're one of these places where students may be the only place in their life that they experience violence at the scale of which they see it. And I can speak to it. I've had to break up fights before uh, among students. Um, that are, are, are violent, not just, you know, pushing and shoving. Uh, I've seen chairs get thrown. I've seen staplers be used. I've seen uh, a, a lot of things. Uh, fortunately, I haven't had to experience a, you know, a school shooting or any kind of like a stabbing or anything like that. Uh, but, you know, the, tr- the trauma that that brings upon, not just for the poor student that feels push to that level, uh, but for those that have to witness it and survive and move on as well, uh, is unbelievable. And again, uh, to kind of go back to what I was mentioning earlier, uh, the unfortunate thing that I think I'm seeing from schools is an absolute refusal to accept any responsibility in that and to really just lay the blame at the feet of parents you know, that, they, that these kids have really bad homes. I sat in a uh, professional development meeting one time and heard a, um, heard a supervisor uh, banty all of these uh, statistics out about the number of children that, you know, have a parent that have been in jail or have had, you know, a parent that has physically or mentally abused them. And again, I know that's happening, but, you know, where was the numbers about the, the, the violence and uh, anxiety and depression that school is causing is why can't we at least recognize that and have that conversation and talk about ways we're in control of this. At the end of the day, we should be able to control our environment. Why aren't we trying to make it more conducive to help these students out? Mm-hmm. It's typical answer from any bureaucracy is, you know, it's somebody else's fault. It's not ours. Give us more money. Yeah. And, and again, you know, uh, yeah, no doubt there's, there's definitely that component to it. Uh, but I don't think there's any, um, 
mystery here as to what the agenda is with the pro uh, public ed crowd, the government crowd. Uh, if you may have also seen here recently too, there was a very controversial piece that was published by a Harvard professor calling for a presumptive banning on homeschooling. And there's many others like her policymakers that have ends with uh, government officials uh, that are attempting to try to influence and persuade this from happening. And so, uh, you know, th there, there's definitely a bias uh, by those who are pro public education that you're too dumb and stupid and backwards to be able to educate your children that it's the job of the state to do that and then if you open up that Pandora's box then you know wh where does it stop right I mean essentially then your child becomes an agent of the state and you can justify any action for the state to come in and say you're no longer a fit parent we're going to take your child away uh, and, and put them into the care of the state. Yeah, that's, uh, that's tragic. Well, uh, Justin, I could probably go on for three hours like Joe Rogan here, but I want to respect your time. We've been on for about an hour. Uh, perhaps we'll get together again because this is number, probably my number one issue is uh, just education because you go around and you see the world and, and people just they blindly follow whatever's on TV, whatever the government tells them. There's a lack of critical thinking, and there's a lack of, uh, I think, humanity. And, and I, th I, I, if I could blame it in a school, I will. I know there's lots of other factors, but I see that as number one challenge in this country right now. Yeah, absolutely. I like the way that you said that. Uh, it is. It's a humanitarian issue. Um, I know that there are a lot, a lot of well-intentioned, well-meaning educators out there. I just wish that there were more that were willing to stand up and say beyond let's eliminate standardized testing because that's the one thing that they'll get on board with, which I'm in favor of as well. But I wish they could go further. I wish they could see even more uh, the damage that's being done here and we'll continue to fight the good fight. Awesome. Well, tell everyone where you can, uh, where they can find your book or your website or whatever you have. Yeah, so the book is available uh, on my website, edfailure.com. That's all one word, edfailure.com. Uh, there's links to the Amazon uh, account there uh, where you can buy a paperback or a Kindle version. Uh, the book is available on Amazon directly if you just uh, search the phrase uh, failure, the history and results of America's school system. Uh, I am uh, very active on social media. Uh, you can find me on Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash Justin Spears 4, uh, also available uh, on Twitter uh, at Justin Spears for there as well. So those are the two platforms that I frequent with social media. Perfect. Well, I want to thank you for your time today and uh, we'll connect soon. Okay. All right. Thanks so much, Mike. I appreciate it. Have a good one, Justin. I want to thank Justin Spears for coming on the show today. There is so much more that can be said about such an important topic. And as with everything else, there can be no one single option for everyone. There should be no central planning authority that has control over our education for our young women and men in this country. Go out and find the option that works for you and your family and seek learning everywhere you can. I want to thank you all for listening. If you like this show, please share it with at least three people you know. Come back next week for another episode. Until then, be good and be free.